0: All right, grab your Bibles, turn to the New Testament letter of James. We're going to be in the first chapter again, verses 12 through 18 today. If you don't have a Bible uh, down the center aisle of seats, you'll find some Bibles stacked on top of each other. Uh, feel, f- feel welcome to um, grab one of those and use it while we're going through the scriptures today. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that with you as your own. James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18, we're going to read these verses out loud together. That's ready to read. Y'all just stand there waiting for me, sitting there waiting for me. All right, let's read together. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we honor your word today uh, by uh, attuning our eyes and our minds and our hearts to it. And we pray that uh, these words written by the hand of Jesus, little brother James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, ordained by you for us to not just read, but to heed, uh, God, that you would uh, help us today, help us to focus, to concentrate, to put behind us all the things that are going on through our mind uh, in regards to life outside of this room right now. And and God, uh, we pray that we would hear from you. Holy Spirit, we uh, we pray that you would penetrate our, the, the thickness of our lives and um, look into our hearts and see us, and that your word would be life and health to us, that your word would uh, incline us to Jesus, the one who's died for us, and that having seen him, we would be changed. We'd be changed by his gospel and for his glory. Uh, So Lord, um, help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you're here for the first time, we're in a, a series in the New Testament letter of James, and you haven't missed much. We're only on the third uh, episode, so to speak of that of that series you can see the you can hear the other two on our website on the podcast and uh, what we 've learned in James so far in a nutshell is a little bit about who he was but here 's the second thing, no matter who you are red, brown, black, white, purple, um, no matter if you 're affluent or poor, no matter what you know what background, no matter if your attitude is happy or sad, trials. Come to us all, and and here's what James has said to us in the first chapter, previous verses about trials. He says very simply, they're meant to teach us to be steadfast. Steadfast is is, is, is this compound word really? Not compound. It, it, it means two things. It means that you're you're able to to stand and be steady, um, but also to to stand underneath the pressure uh, of something, bear the weight of something. Primarily, bear the weight of life. Uh, uh, a trial is meant to help you, teach you to persevere. Trials are meant to mature us so that, in James' words, we'd be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's talking about being uh, having everything spiritually that God wants you to have so that you're able to live life as God has called you to live it, fulfilling however he's, he's called you. Here's an here's important thing. Trials are meant to teach us what's most important, and this is it that God is at work in your life. A lot of times it's, it's our propensity to, to believe that life gets hard and God is absent. A trial reminds you that God is at work in the midst of all that you're going on, at least it's supposed to. A trial is there to, uh, to help you process through character formation that's happening in the midst of whatever the, the struggle, the terrible things that you might be going through. And in the text that we're going to look at today, he's also saying there's an enemy of God and that enemy has uh, that that process. It continues as well um, with with how Satan comes against us to work in the midst of our trial. Um, we're not going to talk about trials per se today. We're going to talk about a subset of trials. We're going to talk about temptation, which I think is I mean, that's a funner topic to talk about. Right. Everybody's tempted. Um Here's the thing that what, what happens, at least in my life, perhaps it happens in your life too, when you get into like subjects like this, you dive into something that, I mean, I, I know I do it, but I don't want to hear somebody tell me that I do it, um, is, is we can easily hear the things that we're supposed to hear for ourselves and, and but concentrate on those that need to hear it more. You know, you're reading a book and you're underlining a bunch of stuff, and the stuff that you're underlining is not for you, it's for your spouse. Or, or you might say, Mom, you should have been in church today. The pastor said some stuff that you needed to hear. I mean, that didn't happen. So, what I want all of us to do, myself included, is to to not do that because the things that James is going to challenge us with today are, are things that all of us at so, either at some point in your in your life, or it might be happening right now, or it might start happening tomorrow. At some point, all of us have experienced this process of going from a trial, a difficult moment to temptation that leads into sin. And that really is what our text is talking about today. And here's a question that I'm going to try and I think James is asking us and I'm going to try and answer. Uh, How do we overcome temptation? So that's our direction. And here's what James says, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It actually appears like James is like every two verses or so starting a new subject or at least a new, new topic. And it, it does actually seem that right here when he jumps into, into verse 13. He's actually not changing subjects or topics, but he is changing his emphasis. Uh, he's telling us that temptation is also a trial. And the way that we know that is in the Greek, James is using the same word for both of those words. Actually, in, in, in the first chapter, when he uses the word temptation or trial or even testing, it's the same Greek word, which means they they express themselves differently, but it's all part of the the same thing. And the way I see it, trials and temptations are two sides of the same coin. On one side, you have God that's using a trial to uh, perfect us, make us more mature. Suffering uh, purifies you, almost like heating up a a, a tarnished precious metal would make it uh, more valuable. But here's the other side of that coin. I want to say you got God um, you know, testing us to strengthen our faith. The other side you have Satan, our enemy, tempting us in order to destroy our faith. And so James is talking about, particularly in this text today, how the enemy works in a trial to tempt us to sin. And I'm going to try and sort of help us understand, all right, so how do we, what do we do to, to overcome that temptation so it doesn't lead to sin. Um, Here's one thing else that that James says. Uh, He's alluding to the the fact that we're human and we all sin. And one particular way that we all sin is is this, we blame shift. Y'all know what that word means? um, It's a counseling term, but we take our situation and all the things that brought it about and instead of taking the ownership for our part and, you know, whatever comes about from that situation, we say someone else or something else made me do what the thing that I'm doing. Okay, We shift the blame to something or someone else. You do this. I do it. Your kids do it. My kids do it. Your mom does it. We all do it. In fact, I think it's true, I mean, we blame, we do it all the time. And here's how we do it. Some examples. I mean, gosh, man, if those girls didn't wear those tight clothes, I, I, I wouldn't be tempted to lust. Or how about this one? If my boss had tighter controls on the, 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 the consumables in our workplace, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be tempted to steal the stuff. I wouldn't be tempted to steal staplers and, and those sticky notes and, and pens and stuff, right? Or how about this one? If if the people in this office would stop bringing Krispy, Krems, Krispy Kreme donuts to work every Wednesday, I wouldn't be tempted to blow my, blow my diet every week. I love this one. If pigs weren't made of bacon, I wouldn't even be tempted to eat pork. And then listen, I mean, we could we could give a lot of examples like this it just goes on and on and on. I think we're all tempted to blame our temptation on things that are external to us. And we don't just do it horizontally or circumstantially. We do it vertically. And that's what James is saying in verse 13. He says we will blame God. We will blame. We will say that God is in the midst of all the, the struggles that we're having. And and he's bringing on the, the temptation, uh, the, the temptation, the big temptation in the middle of our temptation is that it's a thing that God is tempting us. And if you think like me, then that that's easy to do. Uh, I, I love theology. And so I'm usually always thinking theologically that, that God is sovereign. He's in control. The, the psalmist says this, Psalm 115, verse three. The Lord is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And, you know, those are true words. There's, 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 there's no error or lie in that. And if you think about that deeply, then in a sense, God is behind everything that happens. If he's not, he's not God. Um, and so if you if you trace that out, say I'm having a difficulty in life my finances are, are messed up, um, my relationships are messed up, uh, just all kinds of things are going bad in various areas of my life. If I pray to God about that and I say, Lord, this is, I mean, life is tough, I need you to come alongside me and help me just, you know, take away the, the burden of all of this. And, and if God doesn't seem to actually take those burdens away, then, and theologically, I'm, you know, I'm inclined to think, oh well, well, maybe God has put this in my life to to test me, to move me along, to to grow me in all those areas. We we are sometimes tempted to think that God is is, is bringing this on, and and any any test or temptation is uh, is God is in it. Some of you that don't think, perhaps theologically, might think this emotionally, and, and we can get in trouble by doing this. Because a lot of times we can think that the way that I feel about something, I mean, this is it, it can be a, a wayward thing. I mean, I feel right about this. It's just it's like, seems like, you know, I was made to do this like this. And that could apply to anything. Just Use your imagination. Um, and we could think that God has um, God and and his, you know, his sovereignty over us has moved us to, to be a part of it or think that or emotionally be, be into something like that. But here's what James says. He says it very clearly. He says, God himself tempts no one. And then he tells us why. He says, God can't be tempted by evil. And here's, the, here's, here's what that simply means. God is not vulnerable to evil. God has got a supersuit on. You guys see the Incredibles? So God has his own supersuit, He has an S. And the S stands for Supreme, Superior, Sovereign, and the subscript is overall, and God never takes his supersuit off. And so God doesn't need to tempt us with evil because he's already in charge of everything. But here's, here's the question that I get tripped up over every time I read this verse, what does James mean by evil? And what we're going to find out as we trace this through the text, James is basically saying in context that the evil is our own sinful choices. And we see that in verse 14. But each person, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. This is a metaphor. It's a a sports metaphor for those of you uh, that are fishermen. You see the the idea of of being lured and enticed and say, a fisherman, uh, you find your water hole, you go out, you got your equipment, uh, you've gotten your bait from the, the, the bait and tackle shop. Bring it out right there with you. Uh, get your line all straight. You're going to disguise your hook by putting a ju- fat, juicy worm on there. And you're ready to go. You're ready to throw that line in the water. I don't fish at all. So, all right. So don't think I'm like, I'm, just, I'm, a, I'm making this up from when I went fishing five years ago, five 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 at years old with my granddad. But here you got. OK, so the, the, the fisherman's all set. His, 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 his line is in the water. And then you got to fish. And that, and that fish is doing what the fish does. I don't know what a fish does. I don't know what a fish thinks. But I do know this. When a disguised hook that has a nice juicy thing on it that looks like it might be uh, tasty to my eating gets in the way of a fish as he's doing the thing that he does in the water, what's he going to do? He's going to eat that thing. And so the fisherman has, in a sense disguise his hook with bait, and he's lured and enticed that fish uh, into to do what he wants. And this is what James is saying. He says we're just like that with our sin. We get lured in and enticed by the devil um, to do the very thing he wants us to do to thwart us on our faith. And so here's, here's, here's where he's getting at. Um, James is saying this is how we are with our sin. Um Outside of salvation and the Holy Spirit coming and um, pulling you towards Jesus, directing you towards Jesus, inclining you towards Jesus, our natural state is that we are going to be lured and enticed by sin. In a sense, it's what the prophet Jeremiah said in 17.9, that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, One of the translations uses the word wicked, that our hearts are, are wicked. And that sounds like a a really bad thing to say, but I mean, have you ever thought about who you are without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit in you, refining you, reproving you, convicting you of sin, and uh, inclining your heart to Jesus? Without Jesus, our hearts are deceitful and, and desperately sick. And I would say even with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we have flesh that's still not submitted to God and At times, in many ways, we are lured and enticed by the things of this world just as easily as oftentimes when we were not a Christian. And so here's the, I mean, what's the answer to James question? I mean, who can understand their own heart? It's a rhetorical question, and the rhetorical answer is is really no one. Christian or not, we have a hard time discerning what actually is going on in our own hearts. We can't even know how bad our hearts are. So in a sense, James and Jeremiah are saying very similar things, that our hearts uh, outside of Christianity, outside of the, the reproving and the, the pulling that the Holy Spirit does to, uh, to us toward Jesus, that our hearts are tainted. That we have the same temptation that the fish does when he sees that juicy looking bait in the water. We're going to go for it. We, we oftentimes want to sin. We want to take the bait. Sometimes not considering the consequences, consequences. Sometimes not considering um, God and and who He is and what He's called us to. So that's the first metaphor James gives, and then he gives. He goes from this fish metaphor to one that's closer from home. I'm going to back up and go look at verse 14 again and read verse 14 and 15. It says, "But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire." Verse 15. Then. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so the first metaphor was a fishing metaphor. James in, the, in verse 15 is superimposing a, a sexual intimacy on the growth of sin in our lives. Uh, did you all see that? I mean, that's that's really what he's suggesting. Um, and here, here's what the, the gist of what he's saying in verse 14 and 15 is. We tend to think that sin is a single act, but what James is saying is that it's, it's a multi-step process, and your whole body, your whole, I mean, all of you is involved in this process. Just think of what it takes for a baby to be conceived, delivered, and then grown to an adult that lives a long life and, and eventually dies. Boy meets girl. They fall in love. They get married. They um, they decide that they're going to do what married couples do. All right. I don't know if it's ever happened that a boy is just going to look at a girl. A man is going to look at a woman and the baby comes the next day. Right. I mean, it's a process. It's a process of the innate desires that God puts in us. It's a process of the um, the 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 desires that's born of, of, of a man and a woman that love each other. Sexual intimacy happens. Uh, the baby is a, a season planet, fertilizes the egg. Uh, uh, conception happens. The baby grows in the womb, delivered. You got a baby. That baby grows up through years of life and experience. And then at the end of life, there's, you know, there's death for us all. And so he's saying it's a process and sin works in this same way. Uh, it's just a full blown process. Um, every part of you is involved your mind, your will, your emotions, and then it takes action to bring that thing forth. And so here's the process very simply. He says, desire leads to temptation. Uh, desire here is a neutral word. Um, desire, is, it can be a good desire. It can be a, you know in between or it can be a, a bad desire. He's using a Greek word, epithymia, uh, every time you see the word desire. And this has the sense of lust or a craving or something that I'm like longing for, like really, really longing for. Like like ever thought about something that like I got I want it. I got to have it. That's the kind of desire he's talking about. He's talking about over desire. Like I, I'm like outside of myself. I want this so bad. And he says our overdesire leads to temptation. OK, and that temptation, I mean, it could stop right there, but usually it doesn't because we have so many pressures in the outside world that that are that are lending us to actually um, see the bait and actually be lured to it and then eventually enticed so that we bite it. And so that overdesire gives birth to sin. Third step, sin produces death. Um, Here's how this works, at least how it works in my life. You see something and say, oh, my gosh, I I want that. I mean, more than I want it. I got to have it. And then your mind starts working. You imagine what life would be like with it. You maneuver that imagination around a little bit. And then your mind starts to justify why you need it. And it says, well, I mean, it wouldn't be so bad if I had that right. No one will see it if 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 it's something that I shouldn't have or or me and God have this special deal that you know as long as not a few people know about it or if I don't tell anybody, then it might be okay or the, you know what the Bible doesn't really teach anything negative about me having this thing, and so you do this thing in your head, you rationalize it, you justify it, and at some point if you if you keep maneuvering massaging that thing, your will is going to act on the very thing that you it, it, uh, initially were only tempted about. That's how sin works. Let me give you a real-life <laughs> illustration. So all right, I don't like to cook, but I like to eat. Um, and I've told you all a few times that I used to work at McDonald's as a high schooler for three years. I loved it. It was a great environment. I made money. I had my own money to do whatever I wanted. Um, and, uh, and I actually like McDonald's food, so don't, don't judge me. I, I, you know, my, wa- I, my wife tells me all the time that I'm not supposed to eat McDonald's. But every once in a while, when my wife goes out of town, like right, like, like, right today, she, her and Jonathan just <laughs> left on a school trip. Um, every once in a while, when I want to eat, but I don't want to cook, which is all the time, and my wife is out of sight, like today, I get a temptation. It's like, And the temptation is to go right up here across the street, the little giant, and there's a McDonald's right there. And I walk in, at least I want to walk in, and I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to get a quarter pounder with cheese, small fry, and a Diet Coke. All right, I'm going to drag my kids along with me. I'm going to bribe them and tell them they can get a <laughs> McFlurry just so that we can all have this experience of going to McDonald's. It doesn't stop there. That's, that's, just, that's just the temptation that I've given into. Um, when I get in, you get one of those young cashiers, and they ask you this question. It's called suggestive sell. It's like, sir. Would you like to supersize that? And I hadn't thought about supersizing before they mentioned it. But when they do, I'm like, oh, yes. And I roll it over in my mind, and I hear my wife on one side saying, you shouldn't be here in the first place. Don't, don't, just just leave. Get a salad and go. But I dismissed that voice. And I look at my kids, what do y'all want? And then I get my, my I think that's the number, number three. I don't know what, I don't, I don't, it's been such a long time. It's been like at least three months since I've been at McDonald's. And so, and so I was like, I can just get a regular size, but I can get super size, and I will just satisfy all kinds of needs in that moment. And so I said, why not? Why not? I supersize it and on and on it goes. Uh, this is how, that's a lame example, but this actually works with real sins. It works with anger. Think about the things that happens that when your heart manifests anger. Anger is the presenting sin. But back that up and think about the, the, the embryo of someone looks at you wrong. Someone says something uh, bad to you that disrespects you. Someone doesn't follow an order. Uh, someone makes you hurt by, what, by an action or an inaction. And you think about that and your mind does tricks on you and it comes up with motives of why that person did what they did, what they meant toward you when they did it. And this this thing grows, this embryo grows in the womb. And at some point it's going to be delivered as you being angry at the world because it, it, you know, again, blaming you, blaming the world on the things that it did toward you. Or you're going to spit out all kinds of hate on the person that that's the object of of your anger. We could we could superimpose that on lust. We could superimpose that on on ways that you can try you try to control the people that are in your life. So here's here's a good thing to to think about. Why does James give us this level of detail in regards to the process of our of our sin, of how sin happens? And I think this is this is what James is trying to do. I got two answers for you. Firstly, outside of relationship with Jesus, this is our natural bent. In everything that we experience all day, every day, uh, we're like AMC's Walking Dead, that we're naturally inclined to, to be lured and enticed by sin. And there's no filter, there's no guard, there's nothing in it that's, that's going to convict us or make us guilty, uh, feel guilt. Uh, such that we would uh, be warned away from the sin that we're enticed to and then turn to God. Without without the Holy Spirit and Jesus in your life, then you're inclined to this natural bent towards sin. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Did you hear those words? I'm sorry, it's not on the on the screen. I mean, he he's saying we we're inclined to the passions of our flesh, and we will carry out the desires, epithemia, the over desire, where we're lusting and craving and longing for things that we. Um, that are out there that we shouldn't crave for and long for. The desires of our body and our mind. We are by nature children of wrath. That's not a good term, like the rest of mankind. And so, how do I how do I get out of this this state of the walking dead? Here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, "But God." Anytime you see "but God" in Scripture, I mean, those are good words. He's going to be contrasting the words before it with what life in God, by the the cross of Jesus, does for us. But God, being rich in mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is a beautiful passage of scripture, and and it's showcasing for us What happens before and after God, the Holy Spirit, comes on you as you trust in Jesus and his death on the cross in your place for your sin? What happens? You trust in Jesus. You place your faith in him. And Jesus, he forgives you of your sin. He gives you his righteousness. He takes your sin and he makes it such that you are able to walk free of the trespasses that you indeed have already committed. He forgives you for those. Here's, here's the second reason why James is telling us all these details in regards to the process of sin, and especially for, for you who are a Christian. He wants us to be more aware of the process. Here's, here's, here's the temptation that lies out there for you. You need to be aware of it so that you are aware of, of how you're tempted, and more importantly, how you can escape temptation not if, but when it happens. He wants us to know that there's evil and waywardness, uh, wayward desires that lurk inside of all of us, that we can we'll be able to trace out and discern all the ways that you're tempted, the possible wayward desires that, that, that get you to the point where in moments of weakness and trial, you would be more inclined to give way to that desire and sin, and so that you would know this process and be able to, I mean, just plain out escape it. We don't do that all the time, but he wants you to know your heart, to be in tune with your heart so much that when you're tempted, you know how to escape the temptation. And so the natural question to ask after all that, I mean, is is how do I overcome sin? I mean, if if temptation is going to come against me and I'm and in many ways, my natural inclination is to be enticed and lured into sin. How do I overcome it? And here's here's what James does. James almost does something un-American. He doesn't just like, like take the answer, put it in a box, put gift wrap around it and then put a bow and tie it up and say, here you go. Here's the answer. James doesn't give us. uh, Here's the four step process and five steps that you need to do to to overcome sin. He he conceptualizes his answer. He's going to make us work a little bit for us. And, you know, that's not bad for us. But he essentially does tell us, and here's the answer. The way that we overcome sin is to see more be- uh, see something more beautiful than our sin. Let me say that again. He says the way that we overcome sin is to see something more beautiful than our sin. The way we overcome sin is to be captivated by God. He says that in the ensuing verses. Before we, before we get there, I'm going to read a, uh, a quote to you. Um, this is a dead man quote. Uh, Thomas Chalmers uh, was a Scottish pastor. He was um, well known in the late 18th, early 19th century, and he was one of the most brilliant minds uh, in Scotland in those days. And he is most famous for a sermon that he preached on uh, an exposition of, not this text, but First John 2.15. And in that text, he was just uh, articulating The gospel. How the gospel is not just the means by which God forgives us of our sin, uh, you know, through Jesus' death and and resurrection, but how he brings about transformation in our hearts so that we can obtain the promises that God has promised us in the new covenant. And here's what he writes. Um, All right, so let me preface this. This is 18th century English, all right? It's kind of archaic. He uses, this is formal words, uh, it's not how we would talk, but I want you to like hear it and press through it. And then I'm going to give some commentary at the end of it. So Thomas writes, he writes this. It is seldom that any of our bad habits, flaws, sins ever disappear by a mere process of natural extension or by the instrumentality of reason or by the force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed in a person can be disposed or displaced and one taste may be made to give way to another and then lose its power entirely over the person. And then he gives an example. Say a boy who is able to grow up and cease being a slave to his own appetite and his own laziness does so because the more mature affection has been brought into his heart. The young man may cease to idolize sensual pleasure. The idol of wealth becomes Uh, into and gets ascendancy in his heart so that the love of money casts out the love of laziness. He continues, however, the love of money can cease to have mastery over his heart if the boy is drawn into the world of ideology and politics and morality. But there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. The heart's desire for an ultimate object may be conquered. And then this is the most powerful statement that he says in, in his exposition. The only way to, dis- to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. All right, that's a lot of words. All right, any of y'all get, did y'all catch that? Yeah, that's good. All right, let me give some comments anyway, just, to, just to, uh, to make myself feel good. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the stuff that, the, the stuff that you really struggle with in life, it's not going to go away. Your sin is not going to go away if you wish it away, if you think it away, and if you rationalize it away. The only way to overcome your sin is to overcome it by um, disposing it or displacing it by a greater affection. And he gives us an example of a young boy. What do young boys like to do? They like to play video games, hang out with their, with their buddies, Um text a 1,000 times a day and be lazy. And so he says, suppose this boy disposes, displaces his, his sloth, his laziness by at some point just waking up, all right? Life wakes him up. He, he decides, he realizes that if I want to eat, I got to have money. And if I want to have money, I got to have a job. And so just, the, just life itself causes him to grow up. And so he grows up a little bit. He grows up so much that he he gains a new affection. What's that new affection? Money. He realizes that he can make money and keep making it. And that money has um, it's moved him. It's motivated him. And so he, uh, he accumulates houses and money and land and stuff. He rises the corporate ladder. He buys a dream home. He, retire, he retires and then he realizes, I've got all this stuff and nothing, you know, this, what am I going to do with it? There's got to be more to life than just living and having stuff and then dying. And so at that point in his life, he realizes, I should be giving back. That, that I should be creating a legacy with all the things that God has given me. And so another affection motivates him more than just the affection of of gaining money. And it's the affection of sowing into all the things that that he could possibly sow into um, before he dies. And so the desires, all these desires are dispossessing each other. And he doesn't he's not able to move himself from one affection to the other unless something else greater dispossesses the previous uh, obsession, really, and and takes its place. And here's what Chalmers knows. He knows that we sin because it's it's our nature. Okay. so Christian, non-Christian, you sin because it's in you to sin. Okay. if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin and it's always pointing you to Jesus. But as long as you're in this body, in the flesh, in this world, you'll have things that pull you towards, you know, towards sin. You can't escape it. But even more, we have a great compassion to, do, to, to commit the sins that we commit. And so um, here's, what, here's what I think Charles, Charles was pointing at. Uh, there's all kinds of incentives for us to sin. Sin is fun. Sometimes it feels good. Uh, sometimes when we commit it, we don't get in trouble. The Bible would say that sin is pleasurable for, for a moment. And then Chalmers Chalmers, uh, reminds us, we don't stop sinning just by telling ourselves to stop or by thinking it. He says, something has to move it out. And then this is the phrase that I want you to to think on after this sermon, the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what you need to overcome sin. You need the expulsive power of a new affection. You have to have a new delight, a new passion. Something has to be more beautiful in your heart at the moment of temptation If you're really going to overcome sin. And that's what he tells us in the the latter part of the text. Verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my brothers. Um, It's as if James is reading our mind. He's like getting ahead of us and answering questions before we get to even ask them. And here's the question he's saying. "Why, uh, Why is it? Why is overcoming sin so hard? And he gives us the answer because we're deceived because our hearts deceive us, because the world deceives us. It's just so easy to be deceived. Verse 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here's the interesting thing. James is still talking about trials. This is, this is all about trials. Remember, he's saying um, God uses trials to, to mature us, to, to, life presses us, but we, we come out more refined after having gone through that trial. But he's also saying there's another process at work where the enemy of your soul is is trying to thwart you just off of the faith that you have and trying to make you sin. And, and so James is saying, don't get caught off guard by your sin because God is not gonna get, not gonna get caught off guard by your sin. And the God that you serve even in a moment of temptation is a good god you may fail him but god is a good god you may not understand why trials and tests and even temptation is coming your way but god is a good god i don't understand why my mother in law has cancer i don't understand why i'm getting laid off from my job i don't understand why my professor at school doesn't like me i don't i don't get a lot of things but he's saying you don't actually need to get it what do you need to get that God, regardless of your situation, regardless of the, the difficulty of life, is a good God. Get that. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, he finishes with this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Um, James here is telling us that. The way out of temptation is to see that God doesn't do evil to good people. You ever heard, uh, there's a rabbi that wrote a very popular book, um, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Okay, very popular book. I would tell you, it's it's an exposition of Job. It's not the right perspective you should have in regards to, to that. Why? Because the rabbi got it all wrong. We get it all wrong. God does not do uh bad things to good people. The God that you serve is a good God, and He does good things to evil people. You see that i 'm not even nuances that nuancing that. God does good things because he 's a good God, and He does them to evil people. Why because ephesians two says you were dead in the trespasses and your sins, and God in his kindness sent Jesus to die in your place for your sin, and he gave you an opportunity, though you were evil, to be forgiven of your sin when you didn't deserve it. That's what he's talking about here. James, in, in verse 18, this is his depiction of the gospel. This, this, the phrase, word of truth, is repeated five times in the New Testament. James says it one time, Paul says it four times, and even I can throw in Paul up uh, Peter uses a derivation of the words. Here's some examples of, of Paul's use of this uh, this phrase, word of truth. Ephesians one thirteen, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Galatians 1.5 and 6. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since today you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, this this kindness of God, and, and from that I mean this thought that God does good things to evil people. I mean, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that should win our own hearts, the hearts of sinners, and it should remind us that for the rest of our lives, to live our lives toward an unchanging God, who I mean, who is nothing but goodness towards us. That in the midst of trials and even failures, when you succumb to temptation, that God's gifts are good. Here's what he concludes on, and I'll finish with this: When we believe in the gospel, James says we become firstfruits. That's an Old Testament sacrificial term. Israel was told to to give first fruits to God as a means of of, of offering worship to Him, and the first fruit uh, basically represented. Um, uh, Israel trusting in God, uh, of God being faithful to the covenant to, toward them, and um, them saying to themselves, but also God, we trust you to supply all of our needs." Interestingly, this is what James says about, about us, those who have faith in, in God. He says, "We are God's first fruits. The first fruit was the best and the bet I mean, the, the, the first and the best portion of an offering to God. And James is saying that we ourselves are the first and the best of creation and that God himself will prove faithful to us. And this is what trials and tests should teach us. And even when we fail through the myriad of temptations around us, our failure teaches us to turn not, I mean, not to all that the world can give us, but to turn to a merciful, good God who has um, goodness and plan for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this challenge from from James to see really our trials as two sides of the same coin. On the one side we have God that's um, trying to mature us and grow us through the pressures of life. Pressures that sometimes he even brings on us um, that we might mature and be complete, lacking nothing. But then we have the The temptation side, uh, the the enemy of our souls tempting us to sin against God and to lose our faith. Lord, help us when we're tempted to see you, a good God, um, in our midst. Lord, help us to to know that you're uh, there to guide us. Lord, we're all tempted. There's there's no way we can escape it. Uh, Help us to to know our own waywardness, our own tendency toward evil. And then perhaps because we're contemplating and meditating on how good you are, we would know that uh, although we're lured and sometimes enticed by sin, even in our failures, Lord, that you're merciful and good. So merciful and good God, we thank you. Thank you that you have uh, extended grace to us instead of punishment. Thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross in our place for our sin. And it's in his, his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.